Is your dare shirt ironic, by the way? I think it's both ironic and not ironic. Because I remember. Dare doesn't work at all. No, it. it I believe. Are we recording? It, I, I started recording it on Zoom. Yeah. Okay. I, I believe Dare statistically increased the amount of drug usage among teens. Yeah. I believe correctly. I I did a Dare program, though fortunately I, I did not do any drugs as a result of it. I did a drug program, but I didn't do any Dare. <laughs> Why are you wearing the shirt? It's got to be ironic then, if you never yeah. even were involved with it. <laughs> um. It's, that's a good point. Uh, <laughs> well, I got it when I was going in helping kids with like addiction meetings, and it is ironic, I think. Are they still operating? I don't even. I wasn't with Dare at any point. I mean, I'm not like an official sponsor. It, no free ads. You're just making wearing the shirt even more confusing. Then, like, it's just a, yeah. it, it must be just just say it's a bold ironic statement <laughs> because it's the only way it makes sense. <laughs> I feel like it's a hipster statement now because I don't have any true reason. I think it's funny. Well, I, th- um, I think probably a lot of people today don't know what dare was unless they're old people like we are. Right. Uh, it, yeah, it increased. Uh, very. It showed that uh, telling people about drugs makes them want to do drugs. So. Yep, that's that sounds about right. Uh, that was my experience. Uh, oh, oh, I guess it wasn't my experience because I was pretty ignorant at the time. I just remember like they sponsored like trips for you know it, it was kind of religious involved wasn't it like there's a little bit of a religious background kind of going to it i don't know there was a lot of religious groups i got in i was involved in because my town was very conservative and that was how a lot of like community events were driven you know there was always that underto- uh, undertone of you know religion uh kind of christianity kind of uh, seeping into everything there and uh somehow i got away from it but not, it, not before it, it was damaged permanently. It obviously worked for you because you don't have a needle in your arm right now. Yeah, but I have a feeling that I probably wouldn't have gotten a needle in my arm anyway because I was too dumb to seek it out for my own sake and not cool enough to be involved with the people who would have thrust it upon me. Well, I actually become a dare spokesperson, so I'm I'm here like in an official capacity this episode as a representative of dare, and I'd like to help the children get off the drugs. Um, drugs are tempor- te- temporary, but uh, Wu-Tang's forever. Um, that's our official slogan now. We've updated it uh, since the 80s. Um, now we're with the 90s culture. Yes, finally we've uh, made our way into the 90s. Uh, am I born yet? I don't even know. Uh, how far are we into the 90s? Maybe born again once you enroll in our new terror <laughs> program that we're rolling out on the streets as of today. Well, uh, Calvin, it's nice to be back. Uh, do we have a list of topics? I think we kind of just rolled into this without even preparing beforehand. I think we have topics, but how's the air down there? Can you breathe? Sort of. I can I can breathe. because I have uh, superhuman lungs, but um, mm-hmm. a lot of my coworkers can't, and so they're all calling out and uh, thrusting all of their work on me and making me do way more than I want to. Um, you know, if you smoke marijuana, it'll lower your lung capacity by 74%. That's probably why I have such great lungs, because I haven't smoked anything. And so, uh, you know, everyone else is uh, hooked on this reefer stuff. And so they have to call out because they can't handle a little wildfire smoke. Oh, it's a wildfire? I thought it was just all the reefer. That's why I enrolled in the D.A.R.E. program, because I thought it was getting too bad in Seattle. I, I was getting clouds of smoke anytime I go outside. I, I thought the kids were really burning the grass. It may, it may be. It is coming up from, you know, like the Northern California area. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, it's just a huge wave of uh, weed smoke, you know, being caught up in the, the winds coming up this way. I thought that's why it was all West Coast. Like all the parts of the country, not on the weed, they seem fine. They're just on their Oxycontin. Yeah. <laughs> which don't start fires. So uh, here's a new message. Uh, if you're going to do drugs, at least do Oxycontin so you don't burn down the forest. Yeah, do all the, the non-burning ones. Uh, you know, I believe ejecting heroin also doesn't start any forest fires. No, um, it, it has its own dangers, but I, I believe it's a lot safer than the marijuana. <laughs> As far as forest fires go, anyhow, uh, we don't yeah. have any statistics on the actual uh, usage of the drugs. Uh, so, but I, from this statement, you can we can say definitively that in this particular context, heroin is safer than marijuana. There's so much weed smoke out here. I can't tell. I can't tell fog from the actual smoke. I, I've been driving in it since 4 a.m. and it's just a it's a 
I can't believe you're going out and driving at 4 a.m. It's uh, that's disconcerting <laughs> to me because, I, like, when the smoke finally got here and I got up at 4 a.m. to go to work, I in a drive and I got to a stoplight and I'm like, "Where is the light? I can't see the light. I'm at the line, but I can't see the light. How do I know when to go?" There was only one day where it was like that, and I just uh, I did enough to pay off the gas and went home. But I'm getting a I'm getting a different crowd now. Uh, I'm getting in bed at seven, so now I'm on your schedule basically. Yeah, I've I've seen some of the uh, orders you've taken. You want to tell me about those, any? Um, so <laughs> I had a what was the big one? I had one that was thirteen scoops of sugar. It's like how many uh, <laughs> scoops of sugar do you really want in your coffee? I'll take thirteen of them. This for um, like a with, Starbucks order, yeah. It wasn't just that either. It was like multiple shots of like caramel macchiato, grande, big boy sauce. <laughs> So uh, a lot of a lot of that in there. Um, it, it was a long order for a coffee cup, but then it also had three pages of uh, food that was with it. So uh, a lot of people going overboard at five a.m. Uh, living the new uh, Rona lifestyle. That's a uh, ridiculous, ridiculous to say the least. Uh, why are you buying food at Starbucks to begin with? <laughs> well, everyone's out there smoking weed, and they have the they have the munchies at at three four a.m. in the morning, and they got to get to it. What, I, what I delivered I- a pizza at five yesterday. <laughs> Well, that's common. Like, I, I would expect yeah. that of anywhere. You know, that makes sense to me. Pizza, 5 a.m. Pizzas? cravings. Yeah. Pizza is an anytime food. Yeah. Pizza could be for breakfast. Although this was like a 7-Eleven pizza, which becomes more suspect. Just all salt <laughs> and fake pepperoni, fake cheese. Here's what, here's what I don't understand. You know, what's, what's great about living in the today time uh, is that we have the ability to order food and have it delivered from most anywhere you know like these these apps through which we can you know have people deliver stuff they go to all sorts of great local restaurants and stuff and help support those businesses and people are still ordering pizzas from 7-eleven dude what (laughs) what the fuck are you doing (laughs) i like to i like to slip in a dare pamphlet when i drop them off in the morning uh i like to take a picture of their order and say this is your brain on drugs and then i insert it in there with my the, the, uh, Polaroid camera, I, I take the little photo out and stick it on the D.A.R.E. pamphlet. The people who would be uh, subject to the indoctrination of D.A.R.E. pamphlets and the people who order 7-Eleven pizzas at 5 a.m., I imagine is less of a Venn diagram and more of just a circle. <laughs> yeah. Um, I Yeah, that's why I tell them. I also write, um, your brain is a flat circle. <laughs> well, yeah, the... The fires aren't uh, great over here. All my relatives no. are all, all calling me, asking if, if I'm okay, as usual, uh, as they did with the protests and everything. I'm like, it's not here. It's it's in that one small area of, of the state. You know, stop yeah. stop worrying about me so much. I know it's bad, but, you know, it's it's manageable, especially with I've the fire. Go, go I've ahead. had friends calling. They, they were evacuated around that, like, further in. But uh, No, I, I had a friend. Are you he, okay? Yeah, well, I've actually I have a friend who's uh, staying with me because he lives a little further south, uh, a little less than an hour from here, and uh, he had to evacuate. Uh, just yesterday, they they dropped the warning level from three to two over back home, so he was able to go check out the place, and it looks all right. But still, the air quality okay. there is so awful that I, I insisted. I'm like, you got to come stay with us until at least drops another level. What's yours at? Ours was at around two fifty, hovering two. 30 today i think that's about the case here as well maybe a bit higher uh i don't know i try not to go outside at all at the moment because i have yours at uh 408 it says air quality hazardous yeah so a a little higher little (laughs) (laughs) it's a little (laughs) that that sounds about right uh not good yeah not good here uh my uh you know of course my fiance has to come home uh fairly often from work just because the air quality is so bad she's basically going over there to check mail and stuff oh yeah um a lot of difficult systems like with mail i bet and uh, i it feels weird driving delivery i i don't like the people who roll their window down they're like covid bro i'm like a yeah but there's like a there's all this weed smoke that's going to make you pass out in a second if you roll it down so so uh, roll it up and stay off drugs they're like uh, it's really bad it's it's really bad to try not to open your doors so much, you know, stay in the, the farthest, more enclosed areas of your house if you can. My, my brother, actually, uh, who he's, he's got it even worse. He lives in Bend 
okay. the location of the last blockbuster in the world. And uh, that's... He lives the... in the last blockbuster. That's amazing. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he uh, he stays... Uh, he's, he's got his place set up in the... Situated between the, the horror section and new arrivals. Okay. It's a nice little pad in there. Um, Same, yeah. <laughs> anyway... Uh, it's it's really bad there. He was messaging me saying how they kind of have to they have to even wear masks around the house because the air quality is so bad. It's like up in six hundred over there. He was saying, and now he was uh, called away because uh, he's part of the National Guard, and so he's been enlisted to help fight the fires now. Wow. So we're all really worried about him, and hoping he'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. I hope everyone's gonna be all right listening to this, and for all our family and friends that they stay safe and off drugs. <laughs> all right well i think uh on a lighter note we should talk about something uh movie wise i guess it's our podcast right yeah so there's a new pedophilia movie called our cuties <laughs> out this week <laughs> okay okay redo redo hold on we're not even actually recording on audacity yet yeah, so we should probably that start that <laughs> although i'll probably include that because it's <laughs> dumb but you went out and you went ahead and saw it you the bullet for us so that we could have some controversial takes here yeah yeah uh, my wife has wanted to see cuties for a while and uh well as as soon as the uh, stuff started coming out about it um it feels like a challenge in some way for both of us uh when anything's divisive i want to see it but when it's a women's rights issue she wants to see it so uh, a good combination watch there yeah i'm glad that uh i saw in your letterbox review you had uh, her opinion on this as well which is nice to have uh, oh, at least you were. But the the big thing I think that you acknowledged there that was really uh, wonderful was that you're right in saying that the the conversation largely surrounding this film has been very male centric, and uh, obviously us us two white guys here uh, aren't going to add much to that. But you know, I think it's important that you acknowledged it and and kind of shed some light on a underlying issue surrounding this topic that's that's kind of being glossed over. I guess my my main take on cuties is that multiple things can be true in any case that um that a director can make whatever they want to make and that um i I'm not fond of kids being exploited for movies at all so um when they are sexually and I do think it crosses that line several times uh it also makes me uncomfortable and I don't blame people for being uncomfortable. I think we should honor that as well as the artists um I also think that Netflix horribly botched the marketing. And probably ruined the director's career. That's that's been the biggest disaster of this whole thing here. Regardless of uh, what the what the content is here at the the moment, you know, or at least having your perspective and saying that it's not just you know pedophilic, you know, trash, you know, uh, kind of facaded as a you know art film, right? It, it is like a genuine attempt to make a you know commentative narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's about uh, like black muslim women in other cultures like it's in it's in france and uh, black muslim women is about like sexual repression and what's happening like her mom on the other side of it her uh her dad's bringing in a new husband and or a new wife sorry um so he's marrying again and she's up against these forces so she's experiencing kind of like the dismissal of her conservative parents and what that led to while also starting to interact with these cuties which is a band at school which is uh, going out doing dancing practices they're lining up for a new competition she joins just in time to get on with them i think it's pretty linear the story is really taut and it doesn't have a whole lot to say beyond what you think it does um it's also it's it's ultimately against pedophilia and it's against what it shows but but then it shows it to get there right and i think we can like like so at least establishing that good that it obviously is not just the fear-mongering you know uh bullshit that it's you know been purported to be by people on the the extreme right side i would say yeah uh, uh that that's a good thing to establish and uh the question then comes down to how how moral or how much can you show to make a point without it veering into being exploitative itself which is a conversation i think you can have about a multitude of, of different films and you know in a variety of ways and and uh and it's a valid conversation i think but obviously not an easy one to have and i think the people who are participating in the conversation mostly right now are doing so in bad faith uh, you know, few people commenting on this, I think, have actually sat down and watched the movie and allowed it to challenge their uh, 
you know, thoughts and their comforts, you know, it's obviously, I think, intended to be an uncomfortable experience yeah. in lots of ways. Uh, the, the, the question just comes down to then how far can we go? Like, how much is it, you know, uh, performance and, you know, acting and not real, and but then how much of it is also real? This, I think, yeah. I kind of think it uh, continues on into the, the conversation I had a little bit about it, this, a similar idea in the skin documentary. Yeah. And how, uh, you know, we, we talk about depiction, but also the politics behind that depiction and how you can, you know, push and pressure and how that then reflects on the performer, the, the actor, how it affects them down, down the line and, you know, how the culture perceives them then afterwards. These are all important facts to consider in it, but that doesn't immediately delegitimize the act of depiction to begin with. There's... Yeah, I mean, also just showing something, representing it, doesn't mean you're approving of it as well. I mean, there's a, I was okay with Cuties most of the runtime, but a, there's a final dance sequence, which is what's the only thing that Netflix grabbed onto, which is everything I don't like about it. Um, really ugly way to portray children. I thought it shot like a Cardi B video. Uh, for me, like the, the problem is it's like focusing on their ass and shaking their hips and uh, real like close-ups to them like throwing their ass in there and like against the camera and uh, a little uncomfortable for me when like a wide shot would just do as well for me um, mm -hmm. I, I think sexualizing it and glorifying it makes it a little bit different than showing it merely I think becoming a Cardi B video uh, well also it's the point this girl spoilers is trying to grow away from that like uh, she tried it on she saw what uh, kids were being exposed to and then she tried it out and didn't like it so um it has a beautiful final shot where she's jumping in the air with the jump rope and as the shot fades up she keeps going up so she's as high as a building and uh, you see she freed herself from societal expectations. Uh, it has a few nice ideas. Cuties isn't a horrible movie uh, but it, it's really uncomfortable still. I suppose it would be an easier movie to argue in favor for if it was better you know like if this yeah. was a real like piece you know of artistic greatness but from the people <laughs> that i've talked to who have seen the film it's you know like it's a little harder to defend the film itself because it's just good or it's just you know a good effort not necessarily actually great in execution which then makes it uh harder to to deal with than the controversy factor and you know there's uh, I, I think that's a, a huge issue to attend with there, but that's also the kind of risk you take when you take on more uh, controversial material. You really, you have to to do a really great job with it if you want it to register properly. Otherwise, you you are going to have to deal with the uh, the influx of of hate and vitriol. Um, you know, if on top of the you know regular critiques that you would get of a film. Yeah, and I think they have been very irregular because it is coming from a black woman from a different religious culture and from a different country that Americans are so puritanical and we think of the body and sex so differently that any exposure that looks like this and glorifies children would be suspect, but it's not like movies haven't done it before. And they're, I, I have a bigger problem with like thousands of think pieces being out there about these children who are in this movie and their names are attached to uh, Americans calling them pedo trash. Uh, I think that's worse for me than anything the movie does. So, uh, well, I think another interesting topic of discussion that the film might uh, bring up is the idea of, uh, you know, correlating, you know, sexual discussions involving children and sexual education at an earlier age than most Americans are kind of, you know, comfortable with or prepared for, uh, you know, while no, I don't think anyone is advocating necessarily for a six-year-old to be, you know, in any way sexually active of any kind or, you know, even necessarily aware, there, there is a, a certain point where I think we are obviously too hesitant to talk about sex as, as a culture uh, to a younger age, uh, you know, to, to the younger demographic, when they are not only more than ready to uh, have that conversation, but also already, you know, kind of struggling with that conversation with themselves in private. Uh, mm -hmm. I can, I can tell you from my own experience that the sexual education that I had was absolutely insufficient particularly because it had that religious doctrine you know kind of lying underneath it all and were you, uh, were you attending our dare program <laughs> no 
it's uh it's not where it uh came up it came up in uh uh, you know, I remember there was little bits in school, but more so through like youth groups that I attended, which of course are are an even worse, uh, you know, mechanism for teaching sexual education. Uh, I remember like one specific instance where there was like a whole seminar of one of the young younger girls. She was like 18 or something, I think at the time. And she told us how, like, like she, she gave this sad story about how she gave away her, her virginity and regretted it, but was able to get it back through, through God and, and whatnot. And like, even, even in the moment, it was really like, I was aware of how weird and odd it was, but uh, you know, definitely that was the kind of agenda that's being pushed, you know, that, that sex, even at a young age is bad. Not not just like pre premarital sex, but like that was d- definitely like the overall feeling of it. Like, there's no positivity or like you know kind of realism talked about in sex education in America. It is it is yeah. all very puritanical and controlling. <laughs> That's true. Like we we learn like the functions. Like you put the penis in the vagina, and then they're like, oh we oh here's all the bad things that happen when you do that. Um, I, it's very strange like a sex was only a health topic it was only in health class that we learned about like a you know like aids and what was going to happen with stds it was the same as like the dare program honestly and, and and really what that does is that that gives people a warped perspective of what sex is when it is not not only that that kind of physical and active procreation is so much more of a uh, social uh activity as, as well and a bonding uh thing and it is so much more than you know, uh, penetrative sex. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of, it's as much as important as a uh, communication with, with your partner as well. Um, you know, and it's, a obviously a great euphoric experience, but you know, it takes a lot of trust and understanding and, and communication. And the more we try and act like it's something that shouldn't be talked about, the worse people are going to be at it the more mistakes they're going to make uh the more it's going to seem like this shameful activity and the more we're going to get uh you know repressive you know views like we have pointed towards something here which wants to have a serious conversation in this film about um you know child sexualization uh and i think i'm well again from just from what i've seen of the film in, in clips and in discussions and stuff it seems to me that the film is critical of how our culture has drifted more towards an empowerment of sexualization, but is not really considered the ramifications of what that puts on youth and the image we project by making it more pervasive in popular culture. Do you think that's like, like, cause again, like you said, with the, I think the combination with the, the Cardi B release recently here kind of shows a good juxtaposition of that. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're fine with like consuming things like that, but, um, we realize that that's what young girls are seeing and we have TikTok, the most popular social media, which is just young girls dancing. So it's not like this culture isn't out there and broadly available. Um, it's something valid to comment on, I think, because it is so existent in our culture, but uh, uh, a little uncomfortable for me and not a, not a great film overall anyway. Right. Well, I, and I think that's the interesting thing that kind of comes from the whole conversation here is that it's just so misguided in, in the discussion, like all of the conservatives railing against it don't realize that I'm, I think the film is ultimately on its side in terms of the depiction of, of youths being sexualized. Like it is against it. And the uncomfortable imagery you're seeing is just what's being presented to you. Like it's already out there. This is a real thing that's happening and has been happening for, for decades and is evolving, but it's just been, kept out of you know the more popular sites so i think the the film aims to bring or shed some light on that but instead is being you know uh you know kind of belittled or berated as a uh you know piece of that instead which it can absolutely be a result of poor uh you know satire poor you know critical commentary on the film's behalf but you know again that also comes down to the question of how how much depiction you know is critical until it's just you know exploitative i think we didn't need all the training montages of them dancing i don't think they attributed anything to the film we already had the idea they were training and doing all of this so i mean when my wife says she's uncomfortable i listen to her because uh, i don't know how to be a good judge of it i mean i'm a dad and i want to have like sex positive talks and it highlights for me like the real pressures my daughter will face so they're real things and they're they're worth confronting but um uh, i i feel like you could do it without showing the gratuitous dancing and 
Um, I, I don't know. It, it sounds conservative, but it's a lot for me. Yeah, I think that's understandable. And again, I think the aim of the film is to make you uncomfortable. Uh, and I so I think it's it's probably a success in that way. Uh, the question really is, is that if the, the commentary that comes with that was successful, and if it's not, then then the film definitely has a bigger issue. And of course, because it takes a bigger risk in taking on more controversial material, then the backlash is going to be bigger. So I, I think your experience with it is probably the, the most like level-headed from everything I've seen. Obviously, all of the crazy people who just want to, you know, uh, take things down and, and cancel stuff, you know, that's... I've, I've seen crazy stuff from both sides, both supporting yeah. it and, like, denying there's any problems with the movie at all. I'm like, well, uh, I, I mean, I feel like Netflix marketing got very involved with the last scene, and that's what they per perpetuated in their marketing. Um, uh, I just have a feeling there's a lot of influence here that that isn't the directors that it ruined their career. So. Well, the question is as well, how much do you think this was malevolent planning by Netflix to exploit the, the controversial material and make it a huge, you know, discussion point uh, so that more people will go out and see it? Because I imagine not nearly as many people would see it uh, if there wasn't so much discussion going on. Because there's at least a fraction of the people who are outraged who actually sat through the movie maybe didn't appreciate it but you know they gave netflix their clicks i don't think i would have watched it i mean it, right like uh, yeah. I, I knew about this i saw when they picked it up but i wasn't planning to watch it until it blew up and i wanted to have a take on it so definitely smart planning but very manipulative do you do you plan on uh writing a review at all or do you think this is going to mm -hmm. be the most of the conversation this, this seems sufficient i mean i i, 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 like I agree I agree again like i think our perspectives are, are only so valuable in this yeah. uh there's already so many more people who are trying to dive deep into this on both sides and and pick it apart i don't think our voices will save the film by any regard no. you know i don't think they're going to change any minds uh but i guess the bigger question is uh how long do you think this is going to stick around in conversation before everyone kind of forgets about it at least a week uh, i give it a week <laughs> it's it, I, I i guarantee you this is not going to have the lasting impact and you know like earth-shattering ramifications that it's not you know, going to outlast the election come on we have a lot of things yeah, to worry about yeah right now. I, I think you're right though that the director's career is probably entirely you know fucked which is the greatest tragedy of all in this uh but either either it's completely fucked or someone gives her a cool offer to do something small and redeem it i mean yeah. i think that to that like amazon or someone steps in they're like oh we're better than netflix for our directors from foreign countries in this way or neon or someone does something cool but it would have to be someone from that side yeah we can only hope uh i can only imagine she's in total anguish over this yeah. this is like a complete butchering she did okay she had good intentions which is what what i'm what, what i'm taking away i mean i i feel like she did what she needed to and wanted to say i can only imagine how like prudish and dumb america looks from the from the outside yeah. uh you know not not prudish in the sense that you know sexualizing kids is you know inherently okay but like j especially dumb just like the inability <laughs> to consider this as a work of you know critical speculation like <laughs> just immediately taking it as like pedophilic imagery off right <laughs> off the bat like i can't yeah. I, must, I must France think about it because I, I guarantee they haven't had any conversations other than, oh, that's cool. One of our movies got picked up by Netflix. Maybe it has awards possibilities now. No, no. Not anymore. So the, I'm, I'm very disappointed because the, you know, the, the trolls on IMDb have just nuked the film's rating into the ground. Really? Yeah. I'm what not, is it? I don't know if you can see. That's a 2.3 on IMDb. Ooh. It doesn't but, deserve that. With a Metacritic score of 68. That's what it deserves. Uh, Fifty to sixty-eight, I think, is more reasonable. Yeah. So it's it's just people, you know, totally like lambasting it in in the ratings. Most of whom, again, probably can't see it. This is the shame of of internet rating systems. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that I <laughs> I like the idea that uh, there's a more democratic way of value, you know, evaluating films online like this. Not always. 
um, Letterbox seems to usually do it better, but it's kind of the same but thing there. Uh, it's it was a little, a it's a little meter. better. It's a little better. Uh, there's still a small meter, like a half star, because I, I think when people learn there's a pedophile film. Well, you can see, you can see here. I don't know if you can see. There's a huge spike on the very bottom. It's about 900 yeah. one star ratings, but in the middle, they're they're a little bit equal there as well. It's yeah. a it's 921 six or uh, th- three stars, 934. Uh, three and a half stars so it's it's a little balanced out like equal amounts people evaluating it objectively equal amounts people just you know shooting on it with no objective opinion just whatsoever trying to get likes and attention for letterbox clout get out of here thinking as well like and that's the other thing as well thinking as well that going online and just saying that this movie is pedophilic trash uh is actually doing anything to combat yeah. you know any kind of like you know, pedophilic depictions or, you know, real sex trafficking. We did far less to the actual pedophiles in Hollywood than we're doing to this movie. Uh, Talk about Brian Singer or someone else. uh, Yeah. Get off this movie. That's, that's the crazy thing. That's, that's always the thing with this is that the conservative, you know, conspiracy (laughs) theories that Hollywood is some giant pedophilic, you know, cult ring. And when we have actual people like Brian Singer and, and such who are basically getting off scot free from it, you know, He's he's I mean yeah. he's blacklisted right now, but that's not anything. You know, he's still living yeah, off that's of movies. barely anything. Right. I mean, just had that movie that was, you know, winning awards and uh while this, meanwhile, I, I just see why don't you go after actual pedophiles and people with intentions that are bad? Probably because they don't want to confront the reality of what that means about themselves and what they're well, looking at. It takes actual action instead of just yelling into the void of the internet. Yeah, I mean, it's it's harder to target someone that's white and a man, I suppose, when you're a white male. Uh, why why not go after, like, a black Muslim? It's disgusting to me. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't even think they're considering that, honestly. I think they, they, don't. Don't, they, can't, they don't have enough reading comprehension to get to the director part of the credits. <laughs> I, I just don't think it's a huge problem. It's just an okay film and worth highlighting for this conversation, and I, I think I'll go away uh, in two Yeah, I, I think it's... Talk, talking about it's important because it's you know yeah. it's happening a lot right now. It's, it's the main discussion of the the film circles right now is what's going and, on with cuties now that it's it out. might it might shape like a lot of how marketing goes from now and and how children are portrayed in marketing we might look at that more closely so uh, worth looking at this maybe i don't think anything's going to happen i think you this know? is this was just a you know a pile on a dog pile for you know shitting on this one movie and then nothing's going to happen after this um do you think uh well there's a there's a lot of other things going on socially right now and we're looking at the oscars and they have unreleased they've released their new initiative for um what they're going to choose uh what do you how do you feel about this uh i gotta remember i mean at first i remember kind of the first reaction was kind of like this is not right you know like these restrictions trying it it felt very um uh what's what's the word i'm thinking of um performative not not, affirmative action felt like affirmative action like kind of taken to an extreme uh in in that but i think that was because we all kind of read the first one the first qualification which is like you need a you know person of color in in the cast in in some way and not really paying attention to the the systematic changes to production that the ruling right. is really trying to enforce there by diversifying you know and giving more opportunities to you know more uh, minorities and, and you know trying to restore the the balance of power there in the actual filmmaking you know process itself the people of the the crew you know directors writers cameramen you know gaffers and such that stuff makes way more sense to do and and just seems like a, a good call in terms of uh, making sure that the uh, the business of, of filmmaking itself is you know functioning properly in a you know twenty first century mindset. You know, we went to the BAFTAs and looked at their recent rulings from a couple of years ago. So the BAFTAs kind of reshaped what they were doing for diversity. So a lot of these examples are just pulled like straight from what they're doing. Um, but but then on Twitter we have like BAFTA so white, right? Like it doesn't really materially changed anything um oscar so white baptist so white and so like uh what it's doing is kind of putting forward a thing what i'm happy about is in within two years people have to start submitting reports about their diversity so uh, by 2022 um studios will have to submit their films 
with the reports looking at what parts of their films are diverse. And I think just thinking about that as an end goal for films you're about to make right now is insanely valuable. I mean, once you read down it, it's like, okay, it's easy to qualify. Someone on your press service has to be half black and, and you're in, fine. Um, but uh, it's not it's not going to keep any films out, but it's important to start a conversation, I think. Yeah, I, th I think it was kind of silly that people went through to try and like, you know, critique this and they were like, oh, like the past 10 Oscar, you know, best picture documentary wouldn't qualify when like, I don't think any of them really actually looked at the rest of the qualifications. Like this was just based yeah. off of the first one in terms of like on-screen representation. Uh, you know, like with any kind of uh, action like this, you know, where, where you're talking about diversifying, like force diversification and such, uh, you know, I think there's valid room to kind of consider how how much there you can go and how you know, how much you can actually enforce this kind of thing. But generally, these actions are for the better and, and for the good. And I think yield positive results. Uh, but, you know, obviously, it causes lots of controversy, because people don't like the, the implication that uh, we are, in fact, not providing enough opportunities to, you know, yeah. people of color and, and women and such. I mean, it's definitely not a kind of thing that will force that issue. I feel like most films, when you go down it, will already qualify. But I think just having that conversation will push the studios to make uh, more uh, intentional choices about production. And, As, and it, that's the important part here. I think another important thing to remember is that the Oscars themselves are much more a, a symbol and a reflection of the Hollywood system and, and the filmmaking process than it is like an actual representation of good art in, in a given year. It is, it is very much self-driven, self-rewarding, self-recognizing, uh, as we've always talked about. It's all about the inside players and, you know, who's doing, you know, what, who's going around in which circles and such. And it's not necessarily about what is the best of this year, you know, I so think I think it's valuable at this time too, because every year they're adding much more foreign voices and a far more diverse field of inclusions to the Oscars. So as those die out, I mean, it's going to be very diverse pretty soon. Yeah. Again, it, it just really depends on the trajectory of our country in general and our culture, how diverse and more world connected we're, we're going to be. I know like the, Parasite, uh, you know, winning this this last year. Fuck this year, right? Was it this year? This year. Uh... <laughs> the other thing is, are we going to have Oscars in four years? I, I mean, will this even exist when these changes are going to come into play? I, I don't know. I, I think well, the question, I think more so, is like a, a little less looking ahead and more like, are there going to be Oscars this year? What movies yeah. are we are we considering? Is there anything even in the Academy? Like the rules are such that you have to play in a certain amount of time in the Los Angeles area and uh, you know no movies have been playing in Los Angeles for they, some time they removed that rule just for this year and okay that's good well, so that's it's good. more flexible and anything on Netflix is included now um, yeah but how much is that going to well, open it up no, to I suppose it's not it's a theatrical intent so if you intended to release in theaters now you're included I believe yeah that's Bullshit. not yeah, that's that's really lame, and it's still again very old hat way of thinking, you know, yeah. because there's so much uh, great stuff that's coming out on on Netflix and stuff. And you I know, think so they're many... seeing like especially the last two weeks with Tenet kind of failing to reopen movies. That doesn't really matter. Like we're not convinced that movies are the only way anymore. Well, it's yeah. I mean, if anything, the pandemic here has kind of highlighted how um, little like focus there is on theatrical distribution anymore people are very attached you know to to their tv sets even more than they were in say like the 50s when movies really had to step up there and nothing yeah. nothing new has really come to kind of take that over and again the the institution of the cinema is has also largely died out because we've corporatized them you know through mm -hmm. chain theaters and made them less of a kind of sacred place and, and more of a you know just a uh, I don't know. It feels more like a sporting event whenever you go to a like an AMC or something, right? Yeah, I mean, just like the idea of a multiplex, it's not so special when there's 15 screens, and you know, uh, when every movie that's coming out is showing there, it's not like a special thing where you're looking back at important movies or uh, it, there's no atmosphere to it. Uh, it's very corporate. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big factor in what has killed the movie going experience over the last. 30 years or so maybe more than that even yeah uh, i mean still so much value and uh 
I'll always prefer to see anything in a theater. I just when the time's right, like I, a year off vaccine, maybe. I will prefer to see anything in a good theater, is what I'll say. That's the distinction I have to make because you know, I, any theater. You know, I saw my favorite movie in in a regal theater, and it was kind of lame. It was a kind of lame experience because you know the you know the the setup was all you know clunky. Uh, you know the the projection was not always great. Uh, you know. And there was no audience there really to kind of, you know, who, who would respect it properly. All of that, you know, with a, you know, chain theater is, is you know, it's not present anymore. And so, uh, you know, I didn't think I necessarily liked theater, the theater itself until I found like an actual respectable venue in which to watch films. That makes sense. Uh, a lot of the good ones are going to die out with this as well. So that's a shame. So, uh... I, I hope we at least have, like, Sif around here so someone could do good work here. But uh, worried about, like, Arc Lodge in Seattle and some other small ones, uh, Grand Illusion, a few others. Yeah. Anyone who's interested in keeping their, their local, you know, art house theaters alive or their repertory theaters, you know, look to see how you can donate or, you know, benefit them if they have merchandise, you know, purchase that. If they have memberships, you know, get in on that as well. Try and, you know, uh, help them out as much as they can because a lot of them run off of, you know, donations and such. They're, they're nonprofits for the most part. So I hear you've been watching new movies, uh, you, new movies about new wars, uh, civil war. Oh, oh, you yeah. a hot new artist, Ken Burns. Well, like relative to the history of the world, I feel like Civil War is relatively new war. Yeah, uh, I feel like if we go into this as well, we're gonna have a long episode, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I did, uh, uh, I guess going back to not last month, but the one before that, uh, when I watched uh, Hamilton for the first time, uh, first trepidatiously and then emphatically. Uh, I kind of went on to a, a huge binge of listening and researching a lot of American history. And I'm like, man, this place has sucked for a long time. We're kind of a fucked up country. And always knew, been shades of bad, really. Who knew slavery was the source of every problem forever. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of that. And, uh, you know, so first a lot of researching and, you know, being interested in colonial history, then kind of moving through the development of the country. And then, inevitably you're going to reach the the civil war period and then you're reminded again that that really was the flashpoint for for the country and where everything kind of changed and so of course i decided to revisit the the best uh documentation uh in film for the civil war which is ken burns like 11 hour docu-series on it which is yeah. very in-depth and, and very enjoyable and i watched that over like the course of two weeks just whenever i had some free time i'm like i'll put on another episode not even just a breakthrough for Ken Burns, but also formative for documentaries. Um, after this came in 1990, every documentary began looking like this. Um, the same style of presentation. You could see like there's a classic way that Ken Burns delivers information and formats it that really shape what documentaries would become. So this is a really important one, one of my favorites, but it's also been about 15 years. So I have yeah. the DVDs, but they're around. I don't, I don't blame you, but I, I what it works about it for me and why I think it can be so long is that it's, it's very easy to kind of slip into. It's, it's like very like calmly, casually delivered, you know, there's not a, a whole lot to really, you know, take in. And, and because the, you know, so much context is given to the war at any point, like if you missed like a discussion of an entire battle because you weren't paying attention, uh, I think the film definitely informs you more and lets you know. It, and so it was just nice, like, sort of turn my brain off kind of material but also like able to engage with it and learn something along the way but the, the thing is as well is that why this was so easy is that because i've been consuming the same facts about the civil war for a considerable time now so a lot of what i watched in the documentary was repeated so it was, yeah. it was very easy to keep up because i was already in the midst of of this and so what i could really take in and enjoy was the more personal anecdotes and the you know the archival footage all of the photographs of the war i'm like this is the most valuable thing i think that the, the documentary yeah. presents is real accounts of, of it and firsthand you know photographs and evidence of the war you know the first war that could truly be photographed and documented you know uh in that way Young Janine, today they brought in the D.A.R.E. program to our schools. <laughs> As we tried to succeed from the country, they told us no more marijuana. I know, it was, it was uh, 
really good. And I've been kind of continuing on that path though, though I'm starting to run out of uh, material. I got to find more, more podcasts and stuff to listen to about American history. And maybe some hardcore history. I don't know if that's still freely available, but Dan Carlin's stuff is really great and goes into great depth on most wars. Mm -hmm. Just lots of uh, interesting events around there. And I think a lot of things that inform, you know, today a lot, and you know, it really is true that people who don't know history are doomed to repeat it because there's so much yeah. of it that feels the same. And, and <laughs> we, we enshrine so much of the, the founding of father's legacy and, you know, all of the, you know, like the great giants, like, like Lincoln and such in, in that whole period. But, you know, we kind of overlook a lot of American history. That's also still important, like the preceding era involving the Mexican American war, which was, just a total naked, you know, land grab to steal Texas and California from Mexico. That was yeah, the entire sure. motivation for the war, which is really fucked up, but, you know, also in line with our history. Um, from that to a completely different portrait of war, um, uh, another John Woo film, which I've only heard of the last couple of weeks. I, I like John Woo. I had never heard of it. Yeah, uh, this was this was kind of interesting, and uh, I'm glad that you decided to kind of jump on board here because uh, Bullet in the Head kind of took over our our friend circle here for a couple of weeks, uh, where we all just kind of looked into it as as we kind of were starting to. Like, I don't know, there was like a a wave of woo interest uh, amongst our our group here, and uh, it started with one of us watching Bullet in the Head, singing its praises to high heaven, and then, uh, fr from the recommendation of one of our other friends who'd seen it a while ago, and then... Who started uh, this? Uh, it, was, it was, it was Mitty, I believe he, okay. he saw it first, and... So Anthony on there was... He, yeah. Of course he'd start it, that makes yeah. sense. So he watched it and it's like, dude, this is even better than Hard World was in, like, every way, and I said, oh yeah, let me see about that, <laughs> and then I watched it, I'm like, oh my god, I'm sorry I doubted you, you're a hundred percent right. This film is fucking amazing. And then uh, hard boiled, by the way, is the standard. I feel like that's hard boiled that's, is like yeah. a high standard for what action can so look like. And set I think I think a lot of us will use hard boiled as the measuring stick by which all other action movies have to measure up yeah. to. Uh, and it's it's easily one of my most recommended films to people. If I ever have a group of friends over and they need to see something for the first time, it's going to be fucking hard-boiled because that I film mean, <laughs> kicks so much ass. It's it's so electrifying and kinetic and stylish as hell and fun. And it's it's basically the apex of the woo style um and and just so much like balls to the wall fun, entertaining, ridiculously absurd. You know, the whole hospital scene where Chow Yun Fat is, you know, like killing guys while, you know, slinging around and saving babies and, you know, jumping around the hospital is insane and amazing. And it's it's the kind of absurd levels of action that I, I miss in, in movies. So it's the measuring stick and we now measure action movies by baby. So Hard Boiled and Fast and Furious 7 are the only two action <laughs> movies. Uh, this incredibly even better shot i think like it has so much ro romance for the screen and I, I his ideas are so big uh, yeah the the thing with bullet in the head that kind of surprised me was that uh, uh i think with any war movie you especially in like the vietnam war you risk uh glorifying war by making the action stylish and and interesting entertaining and and giving a sense of glory to any triumph that happens and of anyone you would think that would do that, I would think definitely John Woo would be at risk of making the the horrors of war seem too fun and too entertaining. Uh, because I don't know if I've seen anything quite like it. Like, it's an action tragedy, like, through and through. It has feeling, and it facilitates between these two. Yeah, and, and that's the incredible thing, because there are definitely sequences that hew towards hard-boiled, where it's just balls-to-the-wall action spectacle, kill the bad guys, throw cigar, <laughs> explosive cigars, you know, and shit, and it's all fun and ridiculous and amazing, but also at the same time, it's fucking horrifying depictions of war, really brutal and, like, hard to, to take in, and uh, you wouldn't think that a John Woo movie would be able to ground its its hyper violence in you know like stark realism and tragedy uh it, like in a sincere and like hard to watch kind of way 
but bullet in the head totally does and it totally caught me off guard with that like the, the particularly the prison camp scene was excruciating to watch it just felt like it kept going on with these horrible executions one after another it really does have like a three-act structure too like i mean you have like the streets and then um what would you say like the city nightclub then the prison camp and then the, the like the business at the end and it's uh it has such like a, a nice wraparound structure and it feels like it moves from places and yeah. it feels like it takes a lot of cues from like Apocalypse Now and Treasure of Sierra Madre. Yeah, I thought I thought those were good comparisons because then thinking back in retrospect, I, I thought about how this uh, has a lot of parallels with uh, The Five Bloods from earlier this year in that it is a Vietnam film about this group of friends, you know, going to find this, uh, you know, gold you know and such and and you know kind of get their money back and stuff there you know it's not obviously the exactly the same but it takes the cues from zero madre the same it it felt like in some ways but it's like where where that film fell flat so in so many ways for me this was just like it it soared the entire time and it was able to weave in a lot of different themes and, and interesting and you know uh cathartic ways that was just entirely uh surprising and, and, and moving uh you know in the beginning i thought what was kind of most shocking is that Wu calls directly upon the imagery of the tiananmen square massacre from yeah. not even a year before and as a, as a hong kong citizen that is like ballsy as fuck to to do that like literally yeah. they they recreate like the the tank man shot at one scene early on to, in in these protest scenes and i'm like jesus christ how was Wu not killed by the chinese government i, I think that's why we don't hear the movie too like i feel like it should have gotten huge distribution like right after what like the killers and coming into hard-boiled necks uh, in between those you'd think this would be an explosion for Wu. like this is a masterpiece that it, i mean like, my favorite parts are so simple and eloquent. I mean, they're, like, in the middle of a conversation, we will t- go to, like, a ticking bomber in the middle of an action shot. He'll show, like, an immense tragedy. And he's able to, like, balance and weigh feelings. Like, there's a scale, and he has, like, the perfect weight of each. Yeah, because it, it, it's constantly, like, juxtaposing the horrors of the war with the, the internal conflict of the characters going on. There's that scene where, like, uh, where Tony Lung's character is, is leaving, uh, Hong Kong and he's and he's talking with his I think it's his, his girlfriend or fiance and uh, at the same time you have the the guy trying to go and defuse the bomb like right out next to mm-hmm. them and it's cutting back and forth between these moments as they're happening in the midst of the the protest violence all of the protest stuff rings particularly like you know true and you know resonant today uh, with, with all the stuff we have going on with the, the Black Lives Matter movement and whatnot. So seeing like the depictions of, you know, uh, extreme pro- police brutality, you know, subjected onto protesters is, is hard to watch at times because it does feel so, you know, relevant to today. There is like a hardness to watching all of it, but but all of it still looks nice. I mean, it's still so immersive and you're there. I mean, the wedding is so like Godfather like it. The, the fucking funny uh, theme song going through. Oh, the... it's, a, it's a great kind of melancholic, but also kind of lighthearted theme song. And, and that's the that's kind of the magic with, with Wu as well, is that he's able to balance like inherent silliness with like, like seriousness that's a, that's a and, and melodrama. That's a song too. Like the, with the <laughs> monkeys cover. Is oh, it's, yeah, because it's the, the, it, the film opens with the cover of, um, <laughs> oh shit, what song is that again? Um, I look it up. I'm a Believer. Is it? Um, yeah, that's what I yeah. thought. Because because I remember hearing it at first and the tune. I'm like, is that? I'm, I'm a believer. Monkey. Which has been like, I think the context of it is entirely like warped <laughs> now in in a post Shrek world. I sh- I sent you the little uh, Shrek dancing gif while I was, right. while I was watching because I, I appreciated it so much. It was a fucking stupid song though in the in the beginning, and then I then it really grew on me because it transported itself to like this different thing that he uses as a consistent motif and musical cue throughout which which becomes really effective i i hated it at first and it's like twin peaks i'm like this is a fucking annoying song now it's grown on me and it's a part of what the action is it's it's really i think it comes in in powerful moments and one thing i'll say about as well is that uh i think in all points in his career john Woo was not a subtle filmmaker <laughs> never but i don't think i mind that in in any way because he he's able to pull it off with you know great execution like the, like the ending when it's like constantly flashing back to earlier moments like 
I think you would understand the context of the the parallels without reinforcing it through the the visual reminder. Like that's usually a thing in films that I hate, where it feels like a condescending to the audience, where it's like, "Hey, remember this?" But you know, it works. I think really here is because Wu's films are so over the top, melodramatic, you know, operatic in in so many ways. So bringing those back in a very literal sense to the forefront of the audience's mind is totally justified, and it's an established convention of the film language uh so it, it plays beautifully at the end the visual language is just so strong and so um so intensely rooted in uh, a certain kind of cinema you look at like the evolution of it going to like Wong Kar Wai and you see that you know John Wu already loves faces like when he frames people he gets their expression and the softness and there's like a glamour to the shots and everything's a bloom and glowing um I mean, he, he has a signature style that's carried through and it doesn't have to be action. I mean, uh, he's able to apply his same action principles to someone's face, like right. well, attention to someone's movement. We, we often talk about John Woo as this, you know, magnificent, you know, pinnacle action director. But the big thing I think that's, you know, easy to overlook as well is that all of his films have a core, you know, melodrama to them that works, you know, beautifully as well, that they are still you know, exaggerated, you know, uh, over-the-top dramatic stories, usually revolving around the dynamic of, you know, brotherly camaraderie uh, yeah. in these. And I would say Bullet in the Head, more than even any of his other films, you know, really gets into that that core character conflict better than anyone else because it's a, it's a really moving, uh, you know, like hard to, to kind of swallow character dynamic here between the three friends and then their, their fourth amigo, who's a total badass <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, i mean all the characters are pretty badass and cool i mean just from like their street gang roots there's like a a nostalgic godfather vibe of what it means to be in the neighborhood and to be kind of a gangster and i that that action scene right after the wedding is so funny it's so over the top and uh so glamorized i mean it's gorgeous but it, it's also really funny Mm-hmm. And, and again, like the whole shootout in the casino is really like one of those peak oh, yeah. woo action spectacle well, moments. I love you... the cigars. Yeah, the, <laughs> and they, it's the great thing about something like that, in, in like in all those films, is that it just it it comes out with no explanation, <laughs> no for that. It's just like he's got explosive cigars, like he's fucking Bugs Bunny or some shit. You just pull them off the top and toss them. And also, <laughs> there's like the piano player with like the gun, yep. the gun yes, underneath, like. These are all like structural things that and, are and that's like, it, stuff like that's exactly like the beginning of Hard Boiled, where they have the shootout in the tea house where yeah. Chow Yun Fat just like slams a bird cage in the middle of the <laughs> restaurant to the ground and guns pop out of the bottom of the case and he starts shooting up the place. It's that level of absurdism that's just taken at, at face value that's great. Or or also like in uh you know, face off you have Tony Lung again and, and he walks into his library, it's in the trademark John Woo slow-mo he grabs the complete works of Shakespeare off the shelf opens it up and there's a gun inside it I mean it's all just inspiration to Keanu killing with pencils and books I mean we're oh absolutely like this this is entirely you know the step there but you know uh, I don't I I can't think of anyone who comes close to John Woo in terms of making actions so you know riveting to watch it's just it's so it's so amazingly choreographed so entertaining so ridiculous i hardly know if anything establishes it as well as this does in such a cool way that's so tied into a plot too i mean it's it's and and again like the the big thing with it is that all of that is then channeled into the inherent ridiculousness over the top you know gory violence of war (laughs) but with an entirely different context you know watching you know the the prisoners being forced to execute one another in these you know horrifically bloody moments is it's so hard to watch and the performances are equally as over the top as before but they're done so in this dramatic context in which you know the heightened you know, fervor of, of, of wartime conflict feels real. Like all of those execution scenes and all of the hard horrors of war, it's, it feels visceral and real. Whereas opposed to earlier, it's like, you know, the, the zaniness of the spectacle. And so the fact that he balances those elements so incredibly is, is a real shock and surprise. And then it continues on even further into the, the dynamic of the three friends and the climax with the the one who's been mentally damaged beyond recognition that that's probably even the hardest part of the film to watch oh yeah it's gone off now he's drug addled and shaking i mean he has the tremors and i just like the whole effect and impact of what that lifestyle did 
how glamorous it was at the beginning, what camaraderie they had, and then how it all broke them. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, and and so the whole climax is like even though we've left the Vietnam conflict, which was kind of the central dynamic of the story, we've still had this thread of the you know the the trio uh, being worked out the entire time through that, and so to bring it back with that and have this big dramatic conclusion between them all again, and, and particularly the the two friends, I think it's what, what were their names like Frank and Paul, I think. Or? I believe so. Oh, Fra- Frank, Frank and Ben. Paul right. Paul is yeah. the other one. Frank and Ben. Yeah. And and yeah, and have their big showdown. There's even like a big car chase at the end that they managed to work it's in. Great, which is man! <laughs> incredible. When the, car, own, right? when the car is catching fire, I mean, he just like layers ridiculous things on top of each other. And occasionally, you're looking at the run runtime, thinking, "Okay, they're in internment camp. How do they get out of this? How do they last another hour?" And sometimes they don't. Like, I mean, sometimes there's there's like a harshness to it that I I mean, they really go all the way down. Like on a Breaking Bad scale, they've broken all the way. Yeah. Oh, and, and the, of course, like, let's say, I think it's, it's Frank's character. He comes out and he's, you know, capitalized on the opportunity for himself. He's become this big businessman at the end and, and Ben kind of shows up again to have this final showdown with him and, and resolve their, their ever, you know, their lasting conflict. And the context, we get, I think what's also really interesting about the film is the, the title, oddly enough. Yeah. I, I thought it would be something different, didn't you? I mean, I no, thought it implied something else. What's interesting is that the title feels very generic for an action film on the surface, you know, much like anything else, like, uh, you know, bullet to the head. Yeah. That sounds like a, you know, balls to the wall, John Boo action spectacle. It's also the Stallone movie, which I, which I rented the (laughs) first time when you told me about this, I went and rented the Stallone movie. Oh no. I I got my money back, but um, that's good. Pointing out that it's so generic that just another Stallone random movie was called this too, to no effect. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting then is that how the film does ultimately have that context with the, uh, you know, the, the, the character later on with uh, Paul's character and the betrayal yeah, of that. Something. I mean, yeah. I, was, I was blown away that like bullet in the head is something that like he took with him. And, you know, I mean, once there was that shooting, I was like, okay, that's what it means. It means he's going to live somehow and take this with him into his later days. But then, then when you have the skull, it's like, it's like tripling down on what you thought this could possibly mean. Yeah, it really. So you're really taking into the consideration the title there. It has meaning and impact, and I and I I do love like that seems like an insignificant thing for a film, but it's I, I it's think valuable. it really rounds things out when the title of the film is actually reflective of the movie that you've made and not just something you picked out of a hat. I thought it would be like basic like exploitation. Like I thought it would be hard boiled to like another <laughs> extent. I, I mean, I never thought like Bullet in the Head would be like this uh, serious war movie mixed with a credible action and. There's so much here to fucking like. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Because especially when we think of John Woo, we do think of him as this great action exploit. You know, not, not exploitation, but you know, like spectacle filmmaker. Yeah. You know, we think about him, and not only in the context of Hard Boiled and The Killer, and like his his definitive like a Better Tomorrow films, where it's all like brotherly gangsters. You know, shoot 'em up. You know, kind of like fun violence films. And then you think about his American films like hard target face off and mission impossible Two, which are also again they're all these ridiculous you know like action films with you know where it's just a very kind of straightforward plot you know you know shoot them up and everything and and all way over the top but like to actually take all of that and contextualize it in a serious you know war driven drama and have layers of social commentary piled onto that even more like really unexpected you know and in like a whole new level of respect for Wu as a filmmaker who was already someone I lauded incredibly I mean I liked I even liked the five bloods but then I compare it to something like this it's just a whole other level of like context and cinema history and like this is like a mastercraft well that's just a pretty good word yeah and again to consider in the context of uh, as an immediate reactionary film to the the massacre the tiananmen square that makes it amazing like i didn't even really consider that but once you said it i'm like yeah it has like those exact shots from like the tank protest that's and, and there's other shots throughout like he even goes out of his way to recreate some famous photographs from the vietnam war which depicts yeah. the, the brutality of that a too. Yeah. yeah it's like and, and it's unmistakable like he's full-on going and saying these two things are linked they are mm-hmm. they are similar events you know they are similar horrors being perpetrated today and so again and in, in how you can see how that parallels even to today's conflicts as well you could easily apply the the commentary of bulletin head to 
to the issues of today that we're seeing and the injustices being carried out. You yeah, know, um, a lot better than Transformers. <laughs> One of our friends came in and said all action movies are uh, completely the same. How do you feel about that? Uh, I think it's a uh, total bullshit, and uh, <laughs> obviously it was is very enraging to try and Only deal with dramas after. Can- uh, after like, because everyone was on such a high watching this film together. I think. Like, I think the problem is this just wasn't the one. If it was like Fury Road, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's just a fun movie. That's Kaz. That's our friend being our friend. Yeah, right? yeah, and and again, I I could talk about the social commentary aspects of Fury Road as well, but or Transformers. You know, <laughs> you're killing me. You're killing me here. Come on. <laughs> I would. I have to say though, I was. I was I was trepidatious when when you announced that you said you you wanted to watch this one and check it out and get on board. I'm like, ugh, I don't know, especially after like the Jackie Chan debacles and stuff. I'm like, how how much does Calvin get into Hong Kong action cinema? But I, I knew not, you like hard boiled. I, I know, I like hard boiled. Obviously worked for you, but it, it felt more like an exception at the time. <laughs> it did, yeah. But I, mean, I think I think maybe still I think Wu might be an exception to what I'm interested in. Mainly, I think I think Jackie Chan's all impressive stunt work, but. Uh, I need a lot more, I think, if this gives me that. There, yeah, and, and, and I think if this opens up the door to more woo stuff as well, that's great. Because, uh, again, like even just like taking this as an exception and looking at his filmography as this great peak of like action filmmaking spectacle you know like the technique of it the the bravura of it all uh <laughs> you know no, nobody comes close uh no. it's 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 woo all the way which uh kind of makes me even more disappointed than that when we had the opportunity to go uh see him you know at a screening of the killer that we that we missed out on that that's hard uh, i mean that would be amazing to see in person and see him I, I definitely recommend if you haven't seen The Killer, that's another good one to go with. The, I think this, I'll make that next. Yeah, this Killer Hard Boiled and A Better Tomorrow are probably like all the best films that I've seen of his Hong Kong works uh, thus far. And then, of course, uh, F- Face Off, I think we'll have to podcast sometime just because it's so fun <laughs> and ridiculous. Just because it's Face Off. I, there's a lot to say about Face Off. It's yeah, it's it's so great. It's it's like the absurdity becomes like the central thing even more than say like hard boiled, where like the yeah. action spectacle is so much there. It's like you wouldn't even need the action film. Like I could just watch Face Off if you cut out all the action and just had Nicolas Cage and John Travolta imitating each other for two hours. I would watch that a hundred percent. Really do that. <laughs> Let's make that our next move. We could we could do a Face Off soon. Yeah, we'll we'll put that on our our list. Maybe a little on down the line. We've got uh, I think another November western coming up, maybe. and then we got a whole month of horror stuff to look at. So maybe when we come back, we'll we'll talk about Face Off. Yeah, we have we have some exciting horror things, that, some classics, and maybe we could get a couple new ones in. Yeah, uh, you'll have to pitch me some other ideas. I know we have an exciting first one lined up with a a guest okay. or two. Let's not let's I, not give too I much have two away. ideas. I don't know if you're gonna like them. Uh, both of them are Happy Death Day. <laughs> Mm, no, you know, let me uh, let me sit on that one. I'll see if I'm willing to placate you. Uh, <laughs> okay, so he announced a new movie, and it's going to be a happy death day to us, uh, the third movie in the trilogy, and I think it's fantastic news. I'm excited to bring it to the podcast. It doesn't even take place, get this, in one day anymore. That's fucking breaking the whole idea of Groundhog Day down to its core, and it's fucking exploding it. I mean, I thought Palm Beach Story was a pretty cool thing, but... And this fucking exploding the whole idea. Happy death day to us. That's not even singular. The whole world is going through Groundhog Day. It might even be Groundhog Week. How did we almost get through a whole podcast without this happening? I can't believe you didn't open with this. <laughs> well, I think that's my cue to go. But uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad this went over well. Let's uh, get together and have a screening of uh, Bullet in the Head as well sometime. Oh. Yeah, of course. Not, not, not that other one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought love was only true in fairy tales Then for someone else but not for me Our love was out to get me That's the way it seemed Disappointment haunted all my dreams Then I saw her face 